Hello, this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. A quick plug before we start, my folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. And now, back to your regularly scheduled RetroTube. A couple of quick podcast shout-outs before we start. Goonpod, about the careers and adventures of Spike Milligan, Harry Seacombe, Michael Benteen and Peter Sellers, is already essential listening with a really impressive array of guests. And us! I highly recommend Heather's episode in particular. It's an absolute hoot. It's about owls! It's not about owls. The wonderful Crow Violet, host of the Violet Ghost Train, was kind enough to invite me into her virtual home recently, where we chatted about spooky TV, childhood fears and unsettling goings-on. Well worth a late-night listen with a mug of cocoa and the lights off. Meanwhile... Welcome to RetroTube Archive Television Podcast, the coldest of all archive television podcasts. I'm cold, Heather's cold, characters in the show are cold, everyone is cold and it's still only November at the time of recording. This week, what a palaver! There are monsters, there are angry men with surnames, there's lots of snow and ice, there's random meaningless deaths a go-go. Cracking Reagan effect, Gromit, it's season five of Doctor Who! Just to change things up a bit, rather than looking at a single story from Season 5, we've watched two episodes from each of three different adventures, for reasons which may or may not become clear as we go along. Season 5 is the first full season to star Patrick Troughton as the Doctor, with regulars Fraser Hines as 18th century Culloden veteran Jamie McCrimmon, and Deborah Watling as orphaned 19th century posh lass Victoria Waterfield. It was broadcast between September 1967 and June 1968, which is a lot of Doctor Who. So, Heather, what did you think, you wee Sassenach scoundrel? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm still reeling. You watched all of it today, I think, didn't you? You watched all... all... I, I, I've just watched all of it before we started recording. You watched all six episodes from three different stories. <laughs> so yes. it's probably a bit kaleidoscopic, to say <laughs> my, the least. My brain is not doing well right now. <laughs> <laughs> So you're already familiar with William, you're quite familiar with William Hartnell now. You've seen probably at least four or five stories f- I have. from him, I'd imagine. I have. But I think this is your first Troughton adventure, your first it is. escapade into the world of Troughton. It is. And it has to be said, you're already a big, a huge Troughton fan. I am. Although not of Patrick Troughton necessarily. No. Well, I mean, yes, but... Oh, such a huge fan of Sam Troughton, his grandson, mm-hmm. who played famously played Much in the 2006 BBC version of Robin Hood. And although there isn't really a particular resemblance between the two of them, I don't, I don't think. And obviously, uh, Sam is really, really blonde and fair, and Patrick is not. Um, but they mm-hmm. have totally the same mannerisms. So every time Patrick speaks, I'm just like. It just looks like much. It's a really weird sort of similarity. It's, uh, yeah. Um, oh, my God. How much did I love Patrick Troughton in this, though? Oh, <laughs> ask me how much great, I love Patrick Troughton. Just ask Heather, me. Yeah. I've got a question for you. How much did you love Patrick Troughton in this? With all my heart. He's wonderful, isn't he? I adore him. <laughs> Just so much. Just, I have, I'm just, I'm reeling at the moment from how much I love Patrick Troughton. What a guy. <laughs> oh, isn't he great? He's wonderful. He just is. Um, there's something very much in his costuming and, and in some of his performance that feels very Charlie Chaplin-esque. And you know how I feel about Charlie Chaplin. I think it's deliberate. Yes, I feel like it was. Because he's not playing himself. It, it kind of became a thing later on that, that um, from John Pertwee onwards, certainly John Pertwee and Tom Baker and Sylvester McCoy were playing heightened superhero versions of themselves. Mm. But William Hartnell and Patrick Troughton are very much not. They're very much playing characters and the, the actors are nothing like that. Right. Really, in person. It, I think he is based a lot on Charlie Chaplin and he's called the Cosmic Hobo. Oh, 
That's so sweet. So he's just missing everything but the little moustache and the bowler hat. Adorable. But he's great, isn't he? Yeah, there's, there's, I think there's two actors that I could just watch endlessly in anything and it lifts, it lifts everything that they're in. One of them is Jerry Brett as Sherlock Holmes or in anything and the other is our man Patrick because he's just... It's a full-body performance. Like, everything he's doing... Yes, absolutely. ...is part of the performance. His hands and just his posture and everything. Mm. He seems to be aware of the performance. The Either he's aware of it or he's just totally immersed. Yes, yeah, he's oh, he's just great. He's just great. So, yeah, it, it's. I am still reading because, like, um, I mean, I finished watching the last episode of well, the last episode that we watched of Web of Fear, mm. possibly about twenty minutes ago. <laughs> did you watch them all concurrently? Yes, I did. <laughs> so we watched just to uh, let people know, and and there's reasons why I've picked the particular episodes that we do because normally we would watch consecutive episodes yes because that would make more sense but that is not what we did (laughs) it's not at all what we did so we watched tomb of the cybermen episodes one and two Uh we watched the ice warriors episodes one and four and we watched the web of fear episodes one and four just to completely discombobulate poor heather's brainium oh inside her cranium accomplished yep But I kind of wanted to get you, you to get a flavour of season five. I mean, there's there's a flavour, and they're just kind of like being bashed over the head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I I certainly got a, a flavour of of what series five was all about. Lots of angry men with surnames. Angry men with surnames. There were a lot of those. There were a lot of those. So, growing up in the 80s, the conventional wisdom was that out of all seasons of Doctor Who, season five was the absolute ultimate classic. And I can't remember where I got that from. I don't know if whether it was from my school friend Phil Ware, who I name dropped just because I think a lot of people will, will know him and know of him. And we still wish him well. Yes, we do. I don't know if it's that or Doctor Who magazine, or there was an author called Peter Haining who wrote lots of books in the 80s which were all very similar. And I think a lot of conventional wisdom opinions come from his books because there wasn't a lot back then that you could read about the whole scope of history of Doctor Who. There were very few lists of all the episodes and very few digests of the entire thing. So you would tend to pick up. And we were saying in the uh, Gunfighters episode that... The Gunfighters was considered the worst Doctor Who of all time, and I mean. the one before it was considered the greatest Doctor Who of all time. And I think that possibly is a Peter Haining thing, maybe? It was conventional wisdom that this was the pinnacle of Doctor Who. And I think possibly the base under siege format was considered the pinnacle of Doctor Who at that time, certainly amongst uh, certainly amongst my brain and whoever was feeding information and opinions into it at that time. Because you couldn't see most of this. Almost nothing of season five was available to see back then. All of the episodes we watched, I think, or nearly all of the episodes we watched, had been have been rediscovered since. So we couldn't in the eighties, even without, you know, even if there had been video releases in in the mid eighties, most of this we wouldn't have been able to see anyway because the BBC the BBC didn't have it. But yes, it's, so it's this idea of it's an entire season of these recurring monsters, and it's actually only. <laughs> I'm a bad Doctor Who fan. It's only looking into this that I realised that Evil of the Daleks was the end of season four and not the beginning of season five. But growing up, Evil of the Daleks, for me, in my mind, was the first episode of season five, the first story of season five. So it was a season that had Daleks and two lots of Cybermen, two lots of Yetis and Ice Warriors. It had all the monsters. All of the things. All the monsters. And it had the cast of characters under siege from the monsters. So the the story would play out that it was the characters were getting killed off one by one by the monsters and the monsters would be getting killed off one by one by the characters. And that would just be the most exciting thing possible. All of the carnage. All of the carnage, all of the time. (laughs) Uh, And particularly Evil of the Daleks and Tube and the Cybermen were thought of as like the, the towering pinnacles of Doctor Who. And it's enemy of the world in in that season that was thought of as being the weak link because it wasn't at the base under under siege template. It was a different right. sort of story where all, all the others were were more or less marauding monsters, characters getting whittled off one by one, fantastic, and then enemy of the world. Yeah, that's something else. That's a political thriller with Patrick Troughton playing two roles. Why didn't we watch that one? Well, that turned up a few years ago and it's uh, not considered the weak link in the season anymore. And we could have watched that one. We, we 
could. And possibly at some point, maybe. I was wishing we had watched that one. Mm. But I wanted to get more of a flavour of what season five was actually about rather than re- watching the outlier. I wanted to get your thoughts on the base under siege. Because watching this, you could get the idea that this was all Doctor Who would ever be about. It, it isn't. Well, actually, Doctor Who does lots of different things. One of the things that frustrates me a bit about Doctor Who is that Doctor Who can be about anything. It can be whatever your imagination will stretch to. But periodically, it will get into a bit of a rut and the producer will become fixated on one particular way of telling a story and that's still going on now but I think it really started in season five with the producer then who I think I didn't write down but I think it was Innes Lloyd I think to make it very commercial and saleable to America he he fixed on this idea of people versus recurring monsters let's have lots of recurring monsters and lots of rather thinly sketched characters and we'll kill them all off and we'll have lots of random death and that'll be exciting <laughs> kill kill death blood spurt. yeah <laughs> Even though all the the ones that we call base under siege, they're not necessarily bases that are actually under siege, but that's the name that we give to that particular format, even if they're not technically always bases, and if even if it's not technically always a siege. It's that sort of idea. And so now possibly season five is thought of as a bit of a repetitive low point. <laughs> I can't stand the confusion in my mind. Neither can I. Like you think one thing and then you find out another thing and then people think one thing I've and it's like but we've always thought this time. thing. Oh, yeah. No. What, where are we? Who knows? I saw um, Evil of the Daleks episode two at Panopticon 8 in 1987, which I went to with Phil. And that was incredibly exciting because in the 70s, Doctor Who was incredibly popular and every, everyone watched it. But in the mid to late 80s, it, it was really only a thing that the fans liked. And growing up in the middle of rural Lincolnshire, it was really only me and Phil that liked Doctor Who to any degree. <laughs> it was literally only you two. <laughs> It was just the two of us. You were the entire in the corner fan base crying. of Lincolnshire. <laughs> yes. A whole yeah. county in England and the only two people. <laughs> Pretty much. Certainly our little corner of Lincolnshire, I think it was just the two of us. Uh, we're quite, quite disparate characters. He's a very uh, outgoing and charismatic fellow. And certainly me as a 13-year-old wasn't. I think you're very charismatic. Well, thank you. That's very nice of you to say so. It's just true. Possibly as a, a 13-year-old, I, I was very much not <laughs> very shy oh. and I think we talked before about the me discovering film footage of me at Panopticon 8 age yes. 13 when I look about 7 you do look about 7 <laughs> I do not look like a teenager at all it's terrible yes but that, this just means that you've got like really really good genetics and like even now you are a lot older than 7 uh, and indeed 13. You don't look that age at all. Well, thank you. I'm I'm the same age as Patrick Troughton in this. <clears throat> really? Yes. Well, you, he still looks old enough to be your dad. He does. He's 47 in this. Wow, crikey. And I've just had my birthday. You, happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to you, indeed. Yeah. Yeah, so we watched um, the newly discovered Evil of the Daleks episode 2 at Panopticon 8, surrounded suddenly by my people after all those years. We're in London, which... I'd never been to before without my parents. We went with Phil's parents and we stayed overnight in some house that they'd borrowed and it didn't have anyone else in. They just borrowed a house off somebody. Did they break in? Was this just like they stole somebody's house for the night and they were like, oh yeah, we've borrowed it. There were crowbars involved and, and mm. balaclavas, but I, I thought nothing else of it. <laughs> this is just average. <laughs> yeah, and then we went to this university building. But I remember we parked up and this lady came up to us and asked directions to the uh, university building where the convention was taking place and I was already just about frothing with excitement just this was not like anything I'd ever experienced before on, on any level so Phil's parents gave directions to this lady and she said oh thank you bye and then after she left Phil said do you know who that was and I said no and I said, that was Debbie Watling well, there you go. what and I met her later on I queued up to get her autograph it was very exciting. Oh, and did she recognise you as being the frothing with excitement child from outside the no, car park? I don't think so. She was very nice, though. Oh, that's nice. She, yes, she, she startled me a bit because certainly as a 13-year-old, I was incredibly stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I was like I was like Jamie, but more so, just a bit credulous. Oh, ex- extra Jamie. Oh. Yes, yeah, so I'd met... It, it was a, a panel of three people signing autographs, one of whom was Victor Pemberton and the other was, I think, Maurice Barry, who was a, a director 
of Tomb of the Cybermen, I believe. Oh. So I'd met them. And when I went to speak to Debbie, she said, hello, Adam. I was like, what? How does she know my name? Did you have a name badge on? I had a name badge on, but she probably just... (laughs) But also, the other two guys had signed my book, so she'd clearly heard me say what my name was to the two men sitting next to her. And you thought she was psychic. She's magic. Oh. She knows my name. Oh, that's the and cutest that was, thing that ever. that was very exciting. It's like, Victoria knows my name. Oh, that's so <laughs> lovely. Can, yeah. can I jump in now with the time I met Fraser Hines? You certainly can. I didn't know you did. Yes, please do. Oh, yes. He did Panto in Southport in 1990. And he was Buttons in Cinderella. Um, I can totally see that. Yeah, he was great. He was great. Um, at the time, he was Joe Sutton in Emmerdale Farm. Um, so that's uh, that's the only place I know him from. I didn't actually realise that he was in Doctor Who until like quite quite recently. I know, <laughs> I know, I have a very compartmentalised brain. Anyway, uh, there was a part in we we were all on the front row. My my mum, dad, uh, my friend, and her mum and dad. And um, there was a, a part in the play where I don't actually know what happened, but there was. There was some kind of thing involving a golden key. I don't know if Cinderella had to go into hiding and she gave the key to Buttons and Buttons had to hide it anyway. He came over to the front of the stage and he beckoned me forward and he said, will you will you look after this? And I was like, yeah, sure. Oh, my God, it's Joe Sutton. Ah! Uh, <laughs> even at seven, I was an incurable fangirl. Uh, <laughs> and then... Um, the ugly stepsisters came onto the stage and they tried to get the key off me and I was like, no, <laughs> I don't think so. Buttons has given me this, pal. Um, they were very awful. And um, Then uh, he came and got it back and, and every, I saved the day, basically. Can we just can we just point this out? Well done. And I know, it's all right. Me and Buttons, we were, we were a team. And then there was a bit where he had to get kids up onto the stage and he picked my friend to get up on the stage, but she wouldn't go, so I had to go with her, and they kind of didn't want me. <laughs> but like, <laughs> she wouldn't have gone. Which she wouldn't have gone because she was like super duper shy, and I was a little, I was a lot more outgoing as a, as a small child. So we got up there, and it was like, oh, there's five of you. <laughs> I felt I felt a little bit embarrassed, but he was so nice, and he was so friendly, and he was still probably about the same height as me at the age of seven. And um, <laughs> yes, you're a big lass, and he's not a little. He's he's not a big fella, is he? He's not a big fella. God love him. He's tiny, but he was so so sweet, and he was so nice, and he gave everybody hugs, and he's a good hugger. And that is always the test of a true person. It is. It is, yes, yeah. you're so, a good yeah. um, you're a good judge of hugs, aren't you? I am. I do love a damn good hug. Uh, so yeah, me and Fraser Hines, buddies for life. Oh well, fantastic. And me and Debbie have buddies. That's right. That's right. It's quite a, a personal sort of series for you and I, isn't it? And I, I I should say at this point as well, Pat has always been my favourite Doctor, and Jamie has always been my favourite companion. I think partly growing up, I was uh, a secret Scotsman. What's the opposite of a secret Scotsman? Because uh, Scotsman. Well, because like I'm not actually from Scotland. Uh, I was born in Nottingham, but I didn't want to be just one of the other English kids. So because my family's from Dundee, I always played up the fact that I'm Scottish, even though I'm from Nottingham. I think Fraser Hines probably did that, didn't he? Because he's like I think he did. I mean, he did that professionally because he's English, which which is possibly one of the most disappointing things in my life. Discovering that Fraser Hines is English because he's got a Scottish name, Fraser. Yes, I know. It's a good Scottish name, is Fraser. I know it's true. Uh, His mum's Scottish, so he's he is half Uh, Scottish, so it's it's all right. He's. He's allowed. But like me, he has an English accent. Yes, because he was born in Yorkshire. You can't have everything. So we're, we're quite similar, really. Like we, we both pretend to be Scotsmen and we're both born in the Northern Shires. Yes, that's right. And you're both small. And adorable. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're basically twins. <laughs> yes, I always had a little bit of a um, small boy crush on Victoria as well, at least in book form, because I'd never actually seen her in anything until we watched Evil of the Daleks 2 at Panopticon. But uh, I, she came across very well on the covers of books. Oh, <laughs> So they were my favourite, they were my dream team, was the second Doctor and Jamie and Victoria. I think, that, I think Patrick Triton's Doctor seems especially kind. It does seem especially kind. I've made some notes about this specifically in the Ice Warriors. Yes, he's very he's very patient. And oh, I mean, I know we're probably going to get in get into it properly, but 
the thing that really did my head in was the the angry man with the surname. Yeah. Clint, or as my autocorrect kept on spelling it, client. <laughs> um, he was just. A, I mean, I mean, I. I well, let's get to that. Point on it. <laughs> Say, I'm the only bee in your bonnet. Make a little birdhouse in your soul. Anyway. Yes. Go on. Let's 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 make a start, shall we? Let's go through this. So the first one we watched was Tomb of the Cybermen one and two. Uh, and this was always considered the great towering lost classic of Doctor Who. It's the the greatest Doctor Who story ever, apart from Celestial Toymaker. I mean, we like as Doctor Who fans, we like proclaiming things the greatest Doctor Who story ever. But this one really was. It's Cybermen in tombs. Yes. Under the ice and rock. How could that not be the greatest story ever? I think its reputation rests on A, just that idea. Cybermen in tombs. I mean, come on. It's Cybermen in Tombs. <laughs> I mean, it, the clue is in the title. And also, the book is incredibly evocative. It's not necessarily a well-written book. I can't remember. I haven't read it in years, but I read it several times. It's written by Jerry Davis, I think, who wrote the uh, screenplay as well with Kit Pedler. It really, yes, I think it was pro- probably my favourite of all Doctor Who novelizations, and I could really vividly picture these dank and gloomy, cold, dripping ice tombs that the Cybermen are in and the human characters find themselves trapped in. So dark and murky and crepuscular and I could really just vividly feel and see the entire situation. And it was just such a gripping book. Yeah, I must have read it three or four times, I think, that one. You must have done. So how did you feel when you actually finally saw Tomb of the Cybermen? Did you feel like uh, the book was better? Oh. It turned up in 1992 when I would have been 17. Uh, and it was the most exciting news ever. It's, it's not just an episode of Tomb of the Cybermen has turned up, but it's a whole blooming gosh darn thing wow. has reappeared. And it was quickly put out on video, so we got a copy on VHS. Yes, yes. Because you had you had a video player at this point. We like did, yeah. We got one in 1990. So we had one, though. And I, I was quite disappointed. Oh. Because I think the book had been so evocative. And I just really had these pictures of uh, of the characters and the, the situations in my mind. And neither really lived up to it. And I oh, think so being sorry. 17 didn't help. Well, no. Because obviously I was sort of 9 or 10 when I'd read the books. Mm. And that's peak Doctor Who time anyway i think 17 is rarely peak doctor who time for anyone it tends to be peak doctor who time there's two peak doctor who times which is <laughs> mostly pre-teen mm. up to about 13 or 14 possibly and then when you're in your 40s and 50s that's peak doctor who time yes and then there's a big big lull around your teenage years when other things are more interesting in my case really weird cinema this is when i was just getting into you know, things like selena and julie go boating or three women by john altman uh, robert altman rather not john altman that's somebody else oh i'm so i'm so gutted for you that it was so disappointing but when you when you were describing the book and remembering what i remembered of the actual show i was like oh that's not the same <laughs> no. that's not what happened it wasn't dank it was very very well well lit can you tell us about Tomb of the Cybermen? That we so we watched the first two episodes. Potentially not. Um, the, the 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 Doctor and Victoria and Jamie land in a place, a quarry. They have a, like a bit of a, a preamble uh, to the adventure. Basically, it involves around Victoria getting a dress uh, because Jamie apparently <laughs> knows where all the dresses are. I'm, it, I mean, no judgment here. But Jamie goes off to help Victoria into a dress. Is what I my takeaway from the whole thing and then outside there are some archaeologists and they blow up this quarry and they find this these gates to a city it looks like yes an underground thing and so they go and they look and there's like little drawings of cybermen on the front and they're like (laughs) oh we found it guys this is it we found the cybermen so yes they're archaeologists who are looking for cybermen the the long lost race of cybermen who have have been extinct for 500 years some archaeologists are going to find them just for curiosity's sake or are they well i mean you'd think there are some people in the team um one of them is named miss kaftan which makes me (laughs) giggle because it's a very silly name and also, she has a servant called Toberman, and at first I thought it was Toblerone, and then I thought it was Tobermory. <laughs> I got so confused. Hey, Toblerone. 
Well, no, I was, I was wrong. I mean, who better to take when you're going to look for Cybermen than Toberman? I know, he, he's scared of no things. He's pretty badass. He is her Mal Evans. He is. Uh, I've, been, I've been watching Get Back, so... Excuse me, White Cliffs of Dover? I saw a very tiny, tiny little clip of, like, stuff that was going on, and I saw George drumming, and I haven't, I have not recovered <laughs> sufficiently. George Harrison was drumming. I mean, it's like all your I mean, Christmases come at once. I'm going to need a moment. So that's essentially the setup, isn't it? That that it's about archaeologists who are looking for the tomb of the Cybermen. They find the tomb of the Cybermen, and the Doctor and Jamie and Victoria happen to arrive at that moment, and they're accused of being rival archaeologists by the dastardly foreigners. Jamie's wearing a kilt, just in case we weren't sure of how Scott. Yes, he is, always wears the kilt, which is worrying because it does get very chilly in a couple of episodes, and you know. Oh, it's National Pride keeps Scotsman warm. Oh! As somebody who's worn a kilt... I had no idea. I've worn a kilt on your New Year before, outside. Oh. It's not cold. <laughs> oh, fair enough. <laughs> All that patriotism... With my Leslie Tartan. Oh, The Leslie Tartan, by the way, in case you've never seen the Leslie Tartan, is beautiful. It's green. This is the first adventure for Victoria, so the previous story to this was the aforementioned Evil of the Daleks, which is... Se- it's It's... Daleks in Victorian times. And again, like Cybermen in tombs, what could be better? Daleks in Victorian times, what could be better? Not very many things. So she joined the TARDIS crew after that. So this is her introduction as a companion. And the first scene of her in the TARDIS is quite weird because the TARDIS is on film and it's all kind of echoey and it seems really chilly and unwelcoming. It's very echoey, isn't it? It seems even bigger than normal. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an odd thing because normally the TARDIS, even though it's quite brightly lit, Always feels quite cosy. It feels like a safe space. I think so. I don't know if it's deliberate or if it's just a circumstance of the way it happened to be filmed, but maybe it's we're seeing it from her point of view that it's not this cosy, familiar, safe place. That it's maybe it's so something being seen through the eyes of this poor Victorian lass. This weird technological wonder that she's been brought into. There we are. Well, what do you think? No, I can't believe it. It's so big. Where are we? Oh, it's the TARDIS. It's my home. At least it has been for a considerable number of years. What are all these knobs? What, these? Instruments. These are for controlling our flight. Flight? Well, yes. You see, we travel around in here through time and space. <laughs> Oh, no, 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 no. Don't laugh. It's true. Your father and Maxtable were working on the same problem, but I have perfected a a rather special model which enables me to travel through the universe of time. How can you? I mean, if what you say is true, you must be, uh, well... How old? Well, if we count in Earth terms, I suppose I must be about 400... Yes, about 450 years old. Yes. Well, quite. Now, I think Victoria might find that dress a little impracticable if she's going to join us in our adventures. She exclaims loudly, What are all these knobs? Yes, and I thought of you. I laughed. Yes. (laughs) Ah, yes. So on brand for me, you know I was laughing when that happened. I had a little thinks balloon above my head, just a picture of you guffawing. I did. I I like the way she said it. It's it's like she says it like those little children who say inappropriate things very loudly. Yes. Mummy, what are boobs? (laughs) Yes, there's an awful lot of that about it. Yes. Oh, my my favorite bit I think in this episode is is still regarding the the dress because Jamie went and helped her into a dress. The doctor said, "You look very nice in that dress," and she said, "Really? You don't think it's a bit?" And he goes, "Sure, I won't worry about that. Look at Jamie's." (laughs) Um, and Jamie goes, hang on. Oh, hey. Oh, hey, yeah. Hey. <laughs> oh, dear. Bless him. Have I mentioned how much I love Patrick Troughton at this stage? <laughs> He's fantastic. <laughs> also in this scene, the Doctor... We, we still seem to be in the, the continuity where the Doctor has invented the TARDIS because we mentioned that Victoria's father was working on a time-space machine and the Doctor says, oh, yes, I've perfected it. The Doctor wastes no time in getting Victoria out of her dress. No, he does not. Uh, because it's 
It's impractical, which is rarely a consideration when you see some of the shoes that these companions wear. And also some of the outfits. Like Perry, she's barely in some of her outfits. So I kind of think, just as a broad thing about Patrick Troughton and the second Doctor, I kind of see him as the generic Doctor, but not in a bad way. Almost like he's the baseline Doctor, he's the standard Doctor, if that makes sense. He's the Doctor that all the other Doctors are based on. Because I think William Hartnell was very good, but he was he was the only Doctor. So when he was doing it, there was no consideration that there would be further actors playing the role. As far as, as, far as anyone knew, the D- Doctor Who was this little old white-haired man. Grandfather. Oh, grandfather, grandfather. Grandfather. And so that's almost like a standalone character in a way, whereas Patrick Troughton's playing the first Doctor who is part of a series of Doctors. They're now aware that this show can run and run beyond, as it turns out, the lifespan of the Doctor, the actor even. Mm. So it can go on for decades. And it most certainly did. Yeah, he's the first person to come in and take over the role from someone else and make it his own, and I think... He's the first regeneratee. He is, so I think he is like the baseline for what that is and he seems to be the the doctor that is mostly the one that the subsequent ones are playing off they'll have bits of Hartnell in them i think um peter davison especially liked to do the occasional hmm? affectation he would he would do the occasional that questioning hmm? that Hartnell would do and grass clutch his lapels and i know the one you mean despite having never yes. seen yes any... <laughs> yes he was good at that so i think peter davison channeled william Hartnell a fair bit but he really got that more impish, kindly... I mean, not that Hartnell couldn't be impish and kindly as well, but there's that sort of... It's difficult to put my finger on, but that essential doctorliness that I think he kind of originated in a way. He's more eccentric and more approachable. He's very much more, yes. And a bit yes. more lovable. I think so. He's... He seems to be of a different generation to William Hartnell's Doctor. I mean, as as actors, they were only about 10 years difference in their age, if that. But William Hartnell's Doctor is very much of the respect your elders generation. He's the grandfather. He's the boss. He's a superior. But when you see the three of them together in, in these, the three actors together, they're a team. They're just generally three dorks. Yes, they're three dorks dorking about their pals... One of them's a bit older and he knows more so he's the leader, but he's not acting like the leader. He'll, he'll as someone who knows more, he'll, he'll delegate and assign things to do, but he's their pal. Yes, he is. And you can, you can tell. And I think they're all quite a similar height. They're all quite little. They're all tiny. It's adorable. It's like, it's like Dr. Hobbit too. <laughs> I was impressed, I must say, because I haven't watched... Tomb of Doctor Who bit. <laughs> Doctor Who bit. Oh dear. <laughs> it's been a while since I've watched Tomb of the Cybermen, and I was impressed by the outdoor location filming. It was very cinematic. It was a bit, wasn't it? The pan across the quarry, which then goes to the figures way below at the bottom of the cliff, mm. was really nice. And the way that a lot of the characters are filmed from below and sort of a fisheye close up. It made it seem like an American film. The music as well. Even though it's still the 60s, it's still black and white, and it's only a few years later, but it feels very different from the William Hartnell Doctor Who's. Yes. It feels much more cinematic and much more di- dynamic and less stagey. Yes, it does feel a lot less stagey. I, I, not- I noticed that. There- there's still a terrible American accent in this particular I think he's American. Um, or Canadian, George Rubicek. I think what? he is. I don't trust anybody in that freaking show who puts on an accent. <laughs> <laughs> Not after last time. I didn't even trust Shane Rimmer. <laughs> I may be wrong. Well, I, I certainly didn't, and I don't think many people knew what was on their plates. But I don't even trust the English accents from the English actors. Nope, I don't trust anything. <laughs> George Rubicek, he was in Star Wars. He is an Imperial officer towards the beginning who says, one of the escape pods jettisons after launch, but there are no life forms on board. Oh, uh, yes, I know the guy. That's the fellow. But he plays Hopper in this, and Hopper's personality is American. He says things like, you guys, or, huh, wise guy, huh? And he's the most American American who's ever American. Well, that's that. Are you coming back to the rocket with me, Professor? What for? You're not going on with this, are you? Look, I don't know if these people had anything to do with it or not, but one of my men has just been killed. You're not paying that kind of money. Yes, I suppose that's quite true. Now you think it over. Come on, let's go. We'll wait for you back at the ship. Another person who is in this is, is Cyril Shapps. Cyril Shapps. He has been in everything. He's been in Man in a Suitcase, 
Persuaders, The Sweeney, Madeline Hopkirk, Porridge. He's been in everything. Many, many Doctor Whos. And he has also, in everything, been a nervous wreck. <laughs> Is that his thing? He just plays a nervous wreck all the time. <laughs> He's just terrified constantly. Just don't even, <laughs> don't even. I'm just on the verge of a heart attack. Well, I've got a, I've got a right case of the Cyril Sharps. Oh. <laughs> it's all right though. I went to the doctor. I got some cream sauce. <laughs> Yeah, he's um, he's certainly playing a, a character in this, isn't he? It's a bit of a one-note oh. character. Yeah, God, I mean, in just a constant state of panic. <laughs> he makes us look like we're laid back. <laughs> it's no use. I dare not touch anything. If I operate the wrong sequence, she'll die. I must find the logical order. If it's not too late. Yes, I think that one of the troubles with this story is that the characters are either one-dimensional or zero-dimensional. Yes. There's a few characters in this who barely have any personality at all. Like uh, Clive Merrison, who's been in uh, quite a lot of stuff more recently, plays one of uh, Rubicek's men, or one of Hopper's men, rather, and he's there. He's there. He's uh, certainly reflecting light back into the lens of the camera. I'll give him that. He's showing up on film... But yes, we have the dastardly foreigners. We have Kaftan and Klieg. Oh, Klieg, he's a right, he's a right weirdo. Yes, the actor playing Klieg is Cypriot, but the actor playing Kaftan, whose name is Shirley Cocklin, I think. I wrote mm. it down somewhere. She's just wearing brown makeup. That'll do. Quite she patchy is. brown makeup. She's not even a secret scouser. She's only from Wallasey. Oh, really? That definitely does not count. She's, she's not yeah. a dastardly foreigner, then. She's not a dastardly foreign, she's a, she's a dastardly plazzy. <laughs> oh, blimey, I don't even know what that is. Oh, it means a plastic scouser, which is what oh, people right. call people who are from the other side of the water. A plazzy, eh? Oh, a plazzy. Be careful, there might be danger in there. Don't worry. With Toberman to guard me, what is more important is to keep an eye on these strangers. Well, I try Do to Do not get... raise your voice. You will achieve nothing by shouting. You look after the doctor, and I will watch the girl. Hey, Scott's boy. Leave him to Toberman. Eh, Toberman? <laughs> but you will be careful and discreet. Understand? I understand. But it's, yes, they've called her Kaftan, presumably, because they think, what's a foreign-sounding name, Kaftan? <laughs> that, that, I mean, what? People wear kaftans. That's quite a... It's, it's 1967. Everyone's dressed in kaftans. I tell you what, though, it's lucky uh, writers don't do that these days. Cho Chang. Mm. Uh, so this is evil Smurfette syndrome. This is lots of men and a m- very naughty lady. What would you say would be the very best bit in episode one? Because I certainly have a candidate. Okay, I think my candidate here is what does this big button do? Jamie, don't touch that. I already have. Oh, <laughs> no, my candidate is the Doctor and Jamie accidentally holding hands and then getting embarrassed. Oh, they weren't accidentally holding hands, Adam. They loved each other. It w- they were pals. They didn't care. They both thought they were holding hands with Victoria and then they get all embarrassed. Aww. The thing is, Pat and Fraser really were great pals and they really did love each other. That is actually true. I was reading up on the whole Patrick Troughton and Fraser Hines romance and he, uh, Fraser Hines said that the happiest time in his career was when he was working with Patrick Troughton. Oh. It really comes across, though, doesn't it? They're, they're having so it's much beautiful. fun. They love each other with proper love. And you can tell these little moments aren't scripted. They're things that the actors have worked out in rehearsal. Yeah. Oh, but, you know, they're little... You can see them in the corner conspiring. Like, oh, what if we do this? And then yeah. giggling. <laughs> yes. And playing pranks on Debbie. Oh. Which they did. They played lots of pranks on her. I don't quite know how, she, how fond of that she was, but... <laughs> They were a pair of little mischievous monkeys. They were. Oh, bless them. At the end of the episode, uh, the scientist fella Hayden... Yes, played by Bernard Holly, who uh, only died this week, I think. He did? He has something of the Paul Jones about him. Yes. Yes, I can see that. Mm. His personality is quite nice. And very, very scientific, and he talks in really big scientific words at Jamie a lot. Not to at... (laughs) um um, he says he says alpha mason phosphor um jamie's reaction is basically sent to you (laughs) poor jamie doesn't have a clue what the hell this man is saying most of the time yeah it's it's still quite sweet the the like scenes together because jamie clearly doesn't have a clue and doesn't care that he doesn't have a clue 
He's just here for the for the grins, basically. He's. I mean, he's played as being a bit dim, but he is from the 18th century. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know he was from the 18th century until you just said in the preamble, because <laughs> right. obviously I know nothing about this show outside of you. <laughs> one's from the 18th century and one's from the 19th century, but they are essentially from the 60s, aren't they? They are the pair of very them. They're very, the they're very swinging and hip. They are. Apparently, Fraser Hines would get mistaken for Bev Bevan a lot, and vice versa. Oh, I can see that. Mm, yes. So they would sign autographs for each other. Great thing about Bev Bevan uh, is that his name Beverly. Um, Beverly Bevan is a great name. Um, he was like when you're a boy living in Birmingham called Beverly. You either need to learn how to fight or run fast. Um, is is an actual quote from him. Uh, oh, really? I wasn't, I wasn't right. being thingy. Yeah. He played drums with beaters. Yes, not sticks. Beaters. Oh, he it did. Was, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah I was he played with beaters. Yeah, I always noticed that on the clips of the movie. He's got the little balls on the end of his sticks. Lol. <laughs> <laughs> you can't make rude drummer jokes out me. You really can't. <laughs> this is a family show. Well, this is another thing that was disappointing when I first saw this on video was. The cover of the Target novelization of Tomb of the Cybermen has a different Cyberman on the cover. It has the ones that have the big headphones style. Oh, I know the ones you mean. So, so like they're listening to big earphones, big 70s headphones. They've always been my favourite design of Cybermen. So it was a bit disappointing to see the narrow head Cybermen. When Kaftan was on, I just wrote down, The Ring! <laughs> it's like, help goes to space! <laughs> It's like that, though, isn't it? With the accents and the brown face. Yes. Yes, that's right. Viner's really... I keep forgetting how Viner's played by Cyril Shapps. He's so crabby. Oh, God, yeah, he just needs a slap. He's even worse company than the baddies. I know. I mean, honestly, I mean, spoiler alert for episode two, but God, I was so relieved when he died. (laughs) (laughs) It's not the saddest moment, is it? No, it's not. Oof. In fact, one of my notes for episode two is someone gives Cyril Shapps a Valium. Victoria's a sassy 60s dolly bird, really. She she takes no patronising nonsense. Oh, she doesn't. She doesn't like being told to wait behind with the others because it's safer for the women. No. And the women are always being told to wait places and not join in, and she doesn't like that at all. But then she does need to stay behind, and the doctor is like, I'm not telling you to stay behind because it's safe for you. I'm telling you to stay behind because I need you to spy on Miss Kaftan. And she's like, oh, well, if, if you want me to do something useful, then that's that's a different matter. That's the good thing about that, Doctor, is he doesn't... He tries not to patronise in that way, at least in the stories we watch, that he'll always sort of... Yes, absolutely. I love this about him. Yeah, he'll take the aside and go, I'm not really patronising you, it's just part of the plan. She wasn't great at spying on Miss Kaftan, though, to be fair. No, she's quite bad at it. But then she is a recently orphaned Victorian, so mm. possibly not the best person for the job. Everyone is very casual about the fact that a team member has died already. Eh. Which is sort of a classic Doctor Who trope that you just sort of step over the body of somebody you've been talking to and carry on. And even these sort of, even these young ladies will just be quite blasé about the fact that somebody they've spent Some the last few hours died. with has just been murdered by a ray gun. Meh. Yeah. Oh, well. Somebody got electrocuted. <sighs> My notes at the beginning of episode two is, they saw a Cyberman, but Hayden was shot in the back. It's like CSI interplanetary. No one seemed that perturbed that Hayden is dead. No. Not even Jamie, and Jamie's his pal. No buddies. Well, they were. They were just hanging around, and then he's dead, and Jamie doesn't see. He's just like, well, I just pressed a button. But then I guess Jamie has seen a lot of death since he's he's from the Battle of Culloden. So well, exactly. And he probably thinks, like, oh, oh, well, he was English anyway. That's the thing about that character is that the English were his deadly enemies and now he's just got to spend most of his time around 95% English people. He must be secretly wondering if he can get away with killing some of them. I mean, he might be thinking that, but I think he's a patriot and not a sociopath. I don't know. (laughs) Not 100% sure. Not seen enough episodes to make any kind of a pat diagnosis. Also, I I have (laughs) no qualifications to do so. Yeah. Pat Troughton diagnosis. (laughs) The Doctor does say, though, that if anyone wishes to leave, they must do so at once. Not you, Jamie! Yes, that was good. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not, I'm not 100% sure how much of a fearless warrior he is. There's <laughs> 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 this damn building. It's alive. It's watching us. It'll get us all. We've got to leave! All right, Viner! 
This is terrible. How did it happen? We've got to get out of this building. It's deadly. They'll kill all of us if we don't get back to the rocket. Eh? The Cybermen, didn't you see it? Cybermen? Alive Cybermen? My dear Viner, they've been dead for the last 500 years. I tell you, it was a Cyberman, and he came out of there. That, that screen thing. He's right. Keep back, keep back. You'll bring it out again. The question is, what killed him? But you saw the Cyberman, Doctor. I saw something. Well? was looking at that screen in the direction we all were, right? Of course, must you state the obvious? Not so obvious. When you consider he was shot in the back. In the back? You sure, Doctor? See for yourself. Now, if the Cybermen didn't shoot him, what did? The answer, I think, lies over here. Jamie. Yes, Doctor? Can you remember exactly what you did? What sequence you used? Oh, I'm not sure, Doctor. You must try. I want you to repeat it all when I give you the word. Very well, Doctor. Oh, crazy man, you'll bring that, that thing out again. Maybe, I don't know. Now, Jenny, when you're ready. <clears throat> Any time, Doctor. Now, there is a distinct element of risk in what I'm asking you all to do, so if anyone wishes to leave, they must do so at once. Not you, Jamie. I loved in this episode, before the sonic screwdriver, the Doctor just used a book because he wasn't that fancy. <laughs> and he? he looked up what the little, the little caterpillar thing was, which was not a caterpillar. It's a cyber map. What's a cyber map? It's one of those. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes. (laughs) I love that bit. I love that bit. I love the fact that he has a book with him. And it's only a little tiny, like, notebook pocket thing. It's not like, you know, a giant encyclopedia or anything. (laughs) So the print must be tiny (laughs) to have all of the intergalactic stuff. Or he's just got a completely photographic memory and he remembers it all and the, the notebook's just a prop to make him look like he looks more more forgetful than he is. Cleek has shot Viner. Wow, foreigners are so evil. They are. But, you know, to be fair, it was a mercy killing. <laughs> for us. Yes, exactly for us, yes. There's like a recurring thing in this episode and it just feels so incongruous that it made me laugh so much and I have no idea why it made me laugh. But it starts off with, in case it gets cold, I brought some anoraks. Yeah. I just don't know why. I don't know why the, the word anorak is <laughs> is so funny in this particular instance. No, I know what you mean. Like, it's quite a silly word, no, isn't it? No blankets. No big fur coats. No, no, no anoraks. Anoraks. Just, yeah. just anoraks. Think and then anoraks. it's like it's extremely cold down here, even with these anoraks. <laughs> <laughs> banging on about the anoraks and I'm like what, what, why are they even there <laughs> I don't know why it made me giggle so much but every single mention of an anorak I was like <laughs> what did you think to the iconic Cybermen waking up scenes oh that was a good scene I like that I like that the whole well the whole like honeycomb thing as soon as anybody said honeycomb first thing I thought was the royal jelly episode of oh, yes. the unexpected, and I was I was kind of bracing myself, um, <laughs> but no, it's fine. It was just like it just ended up being kind of like a Cyberman version of Jailhouse Rock. Oh, it was, wasn't it? <laughs> I bet no one's ever said that before. I know, but can you argue with me? No. no. <laughs> and that's a real set. That's not an effect or anything. That's an actual set they built, which is very cool. It's a very cool set. I like it. I like the way they all sort of like started climbing down the ladders all silently. And it was, I I mean, I think especially more so at the time. I mean, now that we've got all the kind of effects and CGI and whatnot, it, it looks a bit silly. But I think at the time it probably would have been quite thing to see. Um, I think so. I think what makes it cooler is the idea that they're 500 years old. Well, it'd be like us discovering some tombs from the 16th century and then the robot, these 16th century robots coming back to life. Yes. There's these antiques that have been there for 500 years, at least. I mean, they were extinct 500 years ago, so we don't know how much further ago, you know, when these particular Cybermen are from, but these 16th century robots coming back to life and bursting out of their cling film wrapping. I mean, it's nice that they took the, the time to wrap them in cling film before they put them in the freezer. Although it sort of loses the effect when the all the Cybermen gather and then they open the final bit at the front and the cyber cyber controller is squatting there like he's on the toilet, like they've opened the door and he's... <laughs> oh no, there's somebody in there! <laughs> You're supposed to lock it! <laughs> Leave it ten minutes! <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was, there was, there was a kind of a, a feeling of that because he, he kind of did look a little shocked. 
<laughs> just um, like, oh, no, everyone's looking at me. Oh, <sighs> the only person who's really impressed about this is Clegg. Mm, Clegg. Or is it Clegg? Clegg. Clegg. I am Clegg. Evil foreigner, Clegg. I talk like this, as all evil foreigners do. Good foreigners talk <laughs> like this, you goddamn guys. Hey, you goddamn guys, you guys, you wise guys. I'm a good foreigner. Goddamn. I'm grumpy, but I'm a good guy. You goddamn guys. <laughs> but I am an evil foreigner, so I talk like this. <laughs> I am Klieg. I will destroy you now. Cybermen are my servants. Yeah, for you think, Klieg. For the controller is not having that. He says, her bitch, you thought. Uh, and and then he says, "You belong to us." Yeah. And then they then they're gonna turn them all into Cybermen. What a cliffhanger! What happens next? I will never know. Oh dear, because <laughs> you won't watch the rest. I mean, I might one day, but I will. At this point, I will never know. I mean, presumably the Doctor and Victoria and Jamie don't become Cybermen because they are in subsequent episodes. <laughs> yes, that's a little bit of a spoiler for us, isn't it? <laughs> But aside from that, I mean, I don't know. They could get turned into Cybermen and then somehow find a way to break whatever the curse is or the spell or the whatever the word is. You know, I don't know. This isn't modern Doctor Who. There's none of that stuff. Oh, fair enough. Um, so, yeah, that, that, was, that was the Tomb of the Cybermen. That was all that I was allowed to watch. Yeah, that's the first half of the Tomb of the Cybermen. And in a way, it's a pity we stop there because we're just getting into the Cybermen action, but... The thing with the base under siege style stories is they're fairly much of a muchness all the way through. You can, you get the idea of them from the first yes. couple of episodes. Yeah. So, what did you think to Tomb of the Cybermen? What we saw of it. Well, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I would have liked to have seen episodes three and four um, because it kind of just felt episode one was an awful lot of scene setting. Episode one was all scene setting, frankly. And then it just kind of started to get going by the end of episode two. Yes, we did stop maybe a bit prematurely. And I was like, but, 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 I did <laughs> <laughs> um, was my actual reaction. Uh, so, yeah, no, I, I enjoyed it. I don't, I quite like a Cyberman. I think the Cybermen and the Daleks are my favourites, especially the Daleks. The Daleks are my actual favourites of the baddies. I mean, you haven't seen many to choose from, have you? You've only seen Cybermen and Daleks. <laughs> and <laughs> well, some boring old cavemen and some cowboys. Boring old cavemen. <sighs> <Freaking> cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> we won't mention them again. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I, I enjoy it much more now I don't have the expectations of you know it being this great towering classic. Well, I have, I have nothing to compare it to, really, to be fair. I mean, I have seen kind of modern Dalek and Cybermen episodes because I've seen a few David Tennant episodes of Doctor Who. Not many. My knowledge of New Who is more than my knowledge of classic Who, but I think now I'm at a stage where it's kind of equal. Right, well, blimey, you haven't seen much of either then. No, I've really not. I've really not. I've seen like maybe three David Tennant episodes. Um, like I've seen the Matt Smith episode that, where David Warner is a guest. And I saw the last episode of the Peter Capaldi era when he turned into Jodie Whittaker, which is always fun. And I, I, I've seen most of the first series of Jodie Whittaker. And I really don't know which I like more. What, old or new? Yeah. I mean, they're very, they're so different. They're almost a different show, I think. It is a bit apples and oranges It is a bit. I mean, some of the newer ones evoke the older ones a bit, but structurally... And just the whole look of them and everything, it's its a very different thing. It's got the same title and the same theme tune and the same vehicle and the same character name. I think even the personality of the Doctor's very different. Yeah. I think... I think so. All of the modern Doctors feel like they are the same person or they could be the same person. They're iterations of the same person. But I think they, for me, don't necessarily feel like the same person who is the original Doctor... The ones played by Tom Baker and Patrick Trout and everyone else. The new Doctor has that sort of motor mouth thing going on where they just can't stop talking and will just keep making... They just say everything that they're thinking. That's very much a modern style of writing though, isn't it? It is. It's quite post-Whedon. It is very... It's like the problem that everybody seems to have with Marvel. 
Mm. But there's the, there's a joke every two seconds, even yes. when it's completely inappropriate and there's no need for a joke. <laughs> it's certainly the problem I have with Marvel, one of them. And it was the problem. It's the reason I couldn't get into Buffy. I mean, I, I like Firefly, but generally I'm not a fan of the whole Whedon thing. It, it, it feels a bit overwritten. When you can feel the writing, it's, it's a bit much for me. I completely have no time or respect or anything for Joss Whedon after Avengers Age of Ultron. Oh, I thought you were going to say after his behaviour. Yes, that is... Well, I don't know what that is, but uh, certainly his well, behaviour has been... What? I, I don't. I don't know anything about. I don't know anything because I just. He's he's not the feminist he would once claimed. Let's say. Well, even the feminism that he once claimed wasn't real feminism. Let's be fair, but in Avengers: Age of Ultron, there is a storyline where Black Widow, played by Scarlett Johansson, mm-hmm. there's there's a flashback to her time when she is a a young girl being brought up in like a spy boot camp thing. It's all based in Russia and they have they have a forced hysterectomy which is awful which is horrendous and so obviously she can't have children but her narrative is I can't have children she's and she's saying this to she's saying this to Bruce Banner who is obviously the Incredible Hulk and she says I understand I can't have children so I'm a monster too wow Uh uh-huh Joss Whedon wrote that yikes that's very bad I mean I, I don't really need to tell you exactly how that affected me. Well, quite, yeah. Specifically. His, his behaviour has been very poor, it turns out, compared to what his, you know, the, the, the image that he's liked to cultivate hasn't hasn't lived up to his actual behaviour and how he's treated women and no. all that sort of thing. Apparently he's he's not a good guy after all. He's really not. No. But that, that often happens. Mm, doesn't it? Uh, but I like Firefly. I think that sort of glibness works in that situation. But oh yeah, Firefly's great. But when it's applied to all of write all of writing across all of shows, then it just becomes a bit much, and it does my head in. The reason it worked in Firefly is because of I think more than anything because of the specific actors. Yes, Nathan Fillion in particular. Nathan, you've got Nathan Fillion who can definitely carry that kind of dialogue all the time, as eight seasons of Castle proved. And you've got Alan Tudyk, who has got the worst name in the world. Uh, <laughs> but he was amazing as Wash. Yeah, it wasn't he. Um, he he could he could completely deliver all of those lines that that he was given, and he was he was just sublime. He was probably my favourite character in the show. Mm. So it 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 all worked. The characters were all very very specific and very very different. Whereas his subsequent stuff was a bit sort of. Yeah, well, I'm looking for a Mal Reynolds character here, and I'm looking for a Wash character here, mm. and I'm looking for like a Cade character here. So it was like they were just all sort of transposed from from Firefly to his subsequent shows, films. If you know what I mean? Yes. No, I definitely know what you mean. And it, it starts to feel like everyone's just talking like Joss Whedon. Yes. Hey, why didn't you wake me? I should have been on watch half an hour ago. Why me? No reason, really. Oh, I think I know. Is it because I... Well, if you are 450 years old, you need a great deal of sleep. Well, that's very considerate of you, Victoria, but um, between you and me, I'm I'm really quite lively, actually, all things being considered. Are you happy with us, Victoria? Yes, I am. At least, I would be if my father were here. Yes, I know, I know. I wonder what he would have thought if he could see me now. You miss him very much, don't you? It's only when I close my eyes, I can still see him standing there before those horrible Dalek creatures came to the house. He was a very kind man. I shall never forget him, never. No, of course you won't. But, you know, the memory of him won't always be a sad one. I think it will. You can't understand being so ancient. Eh? I mean old. Oh. You probably can't remember your family. Oh, yes, I can when I want to. And that's the point, really. I have to really want to, to bring them back in front of my eyes. The rest of the time, they they sleep in my mind, and I forget. And so will you. Oh, yes, you will. You'll find there's so much else to think about, to remember. Our lives are different to anybody else's. 
That's the exciting thing. Nobody in the universe can do what we're doing. Well, that's the end of the first part of our chat about Season 5 of Doctor Who. So tune in next time for Part 2. This is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. My folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. Don't talk to strangers, don't play on the farm, and don't go to Almondby. Heather's on-off boyfriend Stephen has gone to the mysterious village of Almondby. He went for two weeks, and no one has seen him in six months. The only trace of him which remains is his voice, distantly calling for help, drifting across the fizz of shortwave radio. With a couple of friends in tow, Heather sets off through a warped, distended version of the English countryside, baking in perpetual summer, to track Stephen down, and to find out for herself why everyone says, don't go to Almondby. Author Eric LaRocca called Lost in the Garden eerily enchanting and profoundly inventive, a dreamy and unsettling masterwork. This is one of the freshest and most spiritually rewarding novels I've read in quite some time. And author Matt Wazilowski described it as like trying to recall a troubling and beautiful dream. It's like peering through a wound in the world, sorrowful and uncanny and utterly stunning. This book is magnificent, like nothing I've ever read before. Thank you, Matt and Eric. Lost in the Garden by Adam S. Leslie, published by Denink Books, priced at ten ninety nine. Look for the pink and white cover.